listening to Bound by Fate, a JRPG podcast. I'm Tyler Pointer. Let me tell you a story. Hello, welcome everyone, or no one. Uh, this is Bound by Fate, a JRPG podcast. I am the host, uh, Tyler Pointer. Ooh, I hate saying my name. <laughs> Tyler Pointer, um, also known as Hypelobotion on Twitter. Um, I am joined today by the very graceful uh, Josh 550AM. Josh, can you introduce yourself for Hey guys, this is Josh. And Josh, what is what do you do? I feel like that's relevant to <laughs> our podcast. I am a CG artist. Wonderful. Cool. Josh and I are friends on Twitter, and I thought um, our mutual love for the game we are talking about today would be very relevant. Um, if we get a little bit off, off topic, that's expected because we love a certain video game series um, that we're going to be talking about. And I feel like now I would cue the song. Whenever sing my song starts playing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's how everyone knows that we're going to talk about Final Fantasy VIII today. Woohoo! Oh. Final Fantasy VIII, Final Fantasy Slate. Final Fantasy Slate. Um, everyone, if you're listening, if I upload this episode for real, thank you for your patience. We had a, how many months? Eight month hiatus. Many moments. We had an eight, eight month hiatus since my last terrible first episode that was just me talking to myself for 30 minutes. Um, I've learned a lot since then. Um, I will say that uh, the original, I was originally going to do Final Fantasy X for the second episode, um, but I could not get any of the voice actors to be interviewed by me. Um, but I did hear back from a certain Yuna voice actress uh, via her manager, which was pretty cool that I, you know. That is pretty cool. <laughs> that I at least like heard back that to say that like, mm, not now, but at least I heard back. No one else, <clears throat> Titus and Lulu, uh, <laughs> emailed me back. But I know that was like kind of why I was like, what do I do? I can't get anyone on here and still thinking about really what I want to do with a podcast since I already, you know, purchased the art and the music to put it together. So I'm happy we are finally at this moment. Um, I'll make note that like the idea for this came from me Twitch streaming Final Fantasy VIII in August and Josh being my only <laughs> my only um, viewer, which was a lot of fun because it was just us talking about the game together, which we're going to do today. So um, I didn't beat it. I stopped. Where did I stop? I think you got to like the beginning of disc two. I, I feel like I was in the jail. That's when I stopped yes. after we got out of the prison, the sand prison. You did like, um, no, I think you got um, to the missile part. Oh my God, I did. And I think I beat the missile part, no? I believe so. Ah, I know where I stopped. <laughs> I stopped at the end whenever we go back to Balam Garden. Like I didn't yes. do the mission where I sent Squall and Renoa. The I think I said so. underneath the school. <laughs> I should have, that would have been so funny. Ugh. That's where this podcast is going. We're gonna know. We're gonna bring talk shit about everything. Um, Okay, it's the best game ever. It really is. Uh, Another reason why I want to talk about Final Fantasy VIII is because a lot of my friends IRL like hate Final Fantasy VIII because they started it and 
they're a little bit older than me, so they were expecting Final Fantasy VII, and they didn't get that. But that's literally the whole point, is it's not supposed to be like Final Fantasy VII. You're not supposed to feel the same thing. Um, in my personal opinion, Final Fantasy VIII is probably the happiest of all the Final Fantasies, uh, even though they're at war. <laughs> Uh, like it's, a, it's literally about child soldiers yeah it's it's about, you know enslaving some children to do magic and blow things up which is really graphic but it's actually camp. it's camp uh but actually it's you know it's the happier one because they focus on themes that the other ones didn't um final fantasy 9 that is a different piece because i think that's actually the saddest one in my opinion um but yeah Josh, tell me about the impact. Oh, Josh, if you didn't know, like I'm gonna get very interviewee in this because I actually did used to be a journalist before I was. Yes, I'm excited to see you flex your journalist skills. <laughs> so um, let's talk about Final Fantasy VIII's impact on you first. Like, what is the general impact? Yeah, so I played a relatively recently, like speaking, I didn't started until 2019, finished it 2020. Um, and of course, before then, I had played other Final Fantasies. I loved them, loved the series, love everything. But eight was one that, like, again, I heard about it. I knew it had a reputation of being, you know, clunky or difficult, but also being like a little bit of a niche fan favorite. So I was excited to try it when the remaster came out. And then, you know, I tried it. I did love the world. I loved the visuals. The system's a little clunky at first, but once you get it, it clicks and it's incredible. And it's like years ahead of everything else. And then its impact on me was like, holy shit, this is probably one of the greatest games ever. Nice. Yeah. Um, I'm in complete agreement. I feel like a lot of people had to get adjusted to the battle system, but that's something, you know, Final Fantasy and Square and Square Enix has always done is change the battle system each game because that's what makes it fun. Um, Guardian Forces is what they use and uh, are what they use in Final Fantasy VIII. And that's, uh, we'll talk a little bit about what they do later, um, just talking about like the game's lore and stuff like that. But that was like the big difference. Um, Josh, you take a lot of inspiration from like 90s CG. Yes. And Final Fantasy VIII was probably the first, it was the first Final Fantasy with really clean and realistic looking um, character art and yeah. 3D models of people. What is your take on that? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Final Fantasy VIII came out in 1999. That's two years ahead of Final Fantasy VII. But even just in that short amount of time, you saw such a huge leap, not only in the direction of CG aesthetics at the time, but also in technology. And so it was a very fascinating period. And when you extend that out to the greater scope of Japanese CG as a movement during that period, it's you can really tell a lot of the influences that the designers were drawing from, the virtual beauty movement, all these CG characters. And it really came to sort of an apex at that period. Right. Um, and there's also you know, other games at the time to compare to. Uh, and I think a lot of people thought at, the, at that point in time that Final Fantasy was already kind of behind, um, but that's just because it takes so long for them to create their games because they want to create like a really impactful and powerful story that's 
different from the other RPGs that are famous at the time. Um, I always like to refer to this as the golden era of JRPG because um, we had so many great games back to back and no one really complained about anything. Uh, we were just experiencing, I mean, not we, because we're in our we were, early we 20s. We were literally babies. We were literally babies. But um, when we, you know, experienced this ourselves, we, you know, we knew the re the relevance of it at the time. Um, There's just such like a warmth to that era. And like, I was having this thought when I was playing Final Fantasy VIII for the first time. Of course, I had played seven front to back multiple times, hadn't played nine yet, but just the era of Square on the PS1, PS2, it's just very familiar and it's very comforting. And I felt this weird like sense like this is what home feels like playing Final Fantasy VIII, having never played it before, but playing plenty of Square's work on other titles. It's funny that you say that because um, a lot of times I try to think of like what the happiest thing I can imagine is. And I always see in my head this vision of a box like shaped TV, like the old TV, because that's mm -hmm. what I was playing Final Fantasy VIII on the first time. Um, and like the window behind it and like light coming in from outside and just like it being summer. And like sometimes I see like a beach kind of, but I think that's just my, my mind taking things like into a fantasy world. But like, that's what I can imagine as the happiest thing is me playing Final Fantasy VIII. And <laughs> It's one of those games that I like will never get tired of replaying. Um, I replayed it in 20 and at the end of 2019 and early 2020. And then obviously recently I played it again and, you know, um, on Twitch and streamed it and talked about my experience a lot. Um, and I've also played that now I've been able to play multiple ports of it. The Nintendo Switch has a really good port. I think that they ported that to PlayStation as well. Yes, the um, remastered version is on all platforms. Yeah, it's on Steam too. I just didn't buy it because I didn't want to spend the money <laughs> <laughs> because I've played it so many times. But um, it, it's like the art is still so classic. And um, like you said, it stands out compared to everything. Uh, Square had, I think, Vagrant Story and Chrono Cross come out the same year, which are two amazing games but the art styles for all three of those games are so completely different it's insane the composers are completely different so it's really three worlds that they were able to create that um you know we don't have we don't have to compare to each other so it's like kind of hard to for it's kind of hard to remember that those games came out you know around the same time period um and after final fantasy 7 which was like the the big break world breakthrough for square so um yeah that's pretty cool um i think i was going to say something about oh well obviously in the future i want to talk about chrono cross and vagrant story because yes. those are also two great games but i guess we can talk about the music a little bit what is your what are your thoughts on final fantasy 8 soundtrack i think that that's like a big thing for me i think the soundtrack for me obviously since i played it so late and i don't have that like youth connection to it um i have to say it may not be one of my favorite soundtracks, but I did love every single piece. And I love the more like techno influence that was in this one. Of course, we had a lot of that in, you know, six and seven, but it really came out in eight. And again, I think that's also due to the technology, different samplers, different sampling techniques, 
all these sorts of things. And also Uematsu's composition style. It's very different each game, but in the same way, it's also very traditional. Like you can tell mm -hmm. that it's his work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm Final Fantasy VIII, to be honest, is my favorite out of all the main line Final Fantasy soundtracks, just because I think it's very funky. Um, and also it reuses a lot of the same songs in different ways, but it's a part of the storytelling, essentially. Absolutely. Um, so we hear like, you know, in Final Fantasy VIII, the main cast, most of the main cast doesn't really have their own theme per se, but there are songs that play in the soundtrack at like critical moments for them where you kind of relate that song back to them. Like Selfie has the Tell Me song that I always think is her because it's it's like re it's like sampling Balam Garden and the, the theme of Balam Garden and just like her sadness with the losing her old garden, you know, it, it right. being destroyed in the the parts of the game. Um, and then you have those like sad moments with Keystis confessing to Squall and being rejected and her coming to terms with it later on in the story, which was really crazy that they did like a romance focus um in the soundtrack but that's I think that that's like the big thing for me is that it just sounds very romantic and then of course I, oh go ahead I think it's also part of like sort of the direction of cinema and pop culture at the time during the 90s right. you have to also consider Titanic came out two years earlier mm -hmm. romance was romance was big money yeah and I think Square was definitely cashing in on sort of this trend of love stories around that time Right. If you haven't heard Eyes on Me by Fei Wong, which is featured in the Final Fantasy soundtrack, <laughs> it's one of the most celebrated pieces gaming music ever. Correct me if I'm wrong, you, Josh, or anyone listening, but I think it was the first, I think it was the highest charting spoken word song to ever be in a video game at that point. Possibly. Um, yeah. And it was definitely the first song we heard in Final Fantasy that featured a, you know, an actual singer singing and not a computer, you know, adding, you know, vocal noises or anything like that. So it was, there was a lot of historical moments for Final Fantasy VIII, which was a big leap for Square to do at the time. Final Fantasy VIII was also the first Final Fantasy to have full-on motion capture for character cinematics, which was a pretty big deal at the time. Motion capture was readily becoming available during the period. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Josh? Yeah. So I think the first game to actually use motion capture going back was Soul Edge by Namco in 1995 on the PlayStation and arcade. But you can just sort of see the progression of this technology becoming available and being incorporated into not just film production anymore, but game production. And that's sort of the hierarchy of these things, you know, things that start for cinema, go down to games, and then it goes out from there. But it's really interesting to think of the intertwinings of technology and Final Fantasy and the directions of popular culture at the period. You know, I think a lot of people take for granted the external factors that contribute to these games. And so um, with, with like Sony being, you know, the PlayStation was what Final Fantasy VIII came out on. Is that really important to CG at the time? Was that basically what? Oh, yeah. So at that time, PlayStation, if you wanted to do 
high quality cinematics pre-rendered video, you could pretty much only do it on PlayStation or PC. Mm. You obviously weren't going to fit Final Fantasy on a Nintendo 64 ROM. It was not right. going to happen. But by moving to CD and Final Fantasy 8 was four discs long. Most of that was just cinematics. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate too. I know we talk about like the jump in um, technology at the time, but Final Fantasy VI came out in 1994 or five, I believe. And for them to develop Final Fantasy VIII, you know, three years later, completely to go from completely pixels to, you know, actual CG technology, like that's a humongous leap that we don't even see today in like video game creation. No. We really don't. And they were making the rules as they go. There was nothing out there to sort of spell out what a 3D RPG was going to be like. Um, so, and then we'll talk about this too. You like Final Fantasy Spirits Within a lot. Was there a lot of connections between 8 and that movie? Oh you? yeah, they were definitely being developed at the same time. 1999, 2000, mm -hmm. 2001 was when Spirits Within came out. A lot of projects at Square at the time and a lot of the staff were probably all going back and forth working on the same projects. Of course, we know now that these studios are made up of plenty of different teams that are all working together on their own projects. But you can imagine just the culture and the sharing of ideas that must have happened at that time. I know even extending out to Final Fantasy IX, there's a lot of shared ideas that ended up in Spirits Within there. Mm. things like the different planets and souls from each planet and you know this it's referred to in um spirits within as gaia theory mm. but this idea of planets having soul in this environmentalist you know undercurrent is very prevalent in final this whole ps1 final fantasy trilogy i wish i could be a fly on the wall in um a lot of these creative meetings back in you know the late 90s just to see what where these ideas were going what ideas we lost that we could have had um there was a graphic going around i think i sent it to you about or we at least talked about it about the different teams and how they shifted through yes. Final fantasy and vagrant story and i think like the whole Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross team was shifted to like Final Fantasy 12. It was something really strange that didn't make sense to me in my head. Like I can imagine the Chrono Cross team maybe making Final Fantasy 10 and being really evolved in that because the art style is kind of similar. But the shift between a lot of these games is just not what you expect. And I wish I could find that image, but that would be a great point to talk about. Yeah, I it, it really is fascinating thinking about sort of just the direction that all these teams went and of course we, we have to talk about Kingdom Hearts because mm. that's where the Final Fantasy 8 team went after after this that's huge I didn't even I didn't even know that one um well the you can kind of see some of the Tetsuya Nomura influence between Final Fantasy 8 and Kingdom Hearts I think he was for real in his prime in those few years um, as, as, as much as we love to talk like shit about him <laughs> in a in an enduring way we do love him absolutely now, this was absolutely like his best era yeah and especially extending that out to sort of j fashion j pop of the 90s 
and sort of the Western influences of that time and how that was being interpreted and reinterpreted and reimagined and how that bled into his work. It's really incredible once you start connecting all the references. And even more so in later games when he was able to basically create um, different versions of people from J culture and his video oh, yeah. and his stories. We have Genesis from Final Fantasy VII is based off of Gact. I think that's how it's, you pronounce it's literally it. Gact. Yeah, um, Ayumi or not? Is it Ayumi? Is Ayumi? In, I don't think she's in Final Fantasy. I think but... she was sort of the basis for Vanille, but she wasn't actually used as a reference for okay. any of the characters i know that she was in resident evil zero as rebecca she was in that and then i think i told you she's definitely influenced her her visuals are definitely in, have definitely influenced um tales of exilia as well oh, with yeah. Mila, who she sing which she sings the opening song for the the original and the sequel so we could do an entire episode on Ayumi's influence. It's, it's a J-pop rite of passage <laughs> to have a theme song for something. Yes. Um, and then Kodakumi, of course, has a lot Kodakumi. of uh, features in Final Fantasy with the Final she, Fantasy She 10. was Final Fantasy X too. Yeah, she, she literally was the is. Game. <laughs> and you can see different kind of, it's not just Riku or Yuna. It's like you can see it within all the characters, just kind of their funky clothing options and um the styles that they kind of represent Ten Two is literally the most j-pop final fantasy in like the best way every part of that game just had soul and it was just oozing coolness yeah um and of course with that that's why that game ended up being so popular in japan at the time is and still to this day, one of the most considered one of the most famous games in Japan is Final Fantasy X-2. It's just because it was the era. They really captured the era really well. So Final Fantasy VIII, let's see. Back, back to Final Fantasy Slate. Final Fantasy Slays. Um, so we were just talking about development team shifting around in the Kingdom Hearts and Tetsuya Nomura's style, and of course, we respect him so much. Um, he really has one of the greatest minds I've ever, you know. I do consider him like one of the greatest artists like ever. Yeah, um, just the stories that he has that impacted me growing up were just um, immense and never ending. And of course, I hope to see more of his great work. Um, and then we could also talk about the fact that it takes so long to develop games now um because of rendering and um all the other facets of game making that yes <laughs> um that wasn't a thing at the time yeah so <laughs> games do take a very long time to make they even took a long time to make back then but right. of course the fidelity of the production just got so much higher so they need obviously more people and that's obviously a lot more money and even with more manpower, it still takes a lot of time to make these games, you know. And I was telling a friend the other day just how long it took them, even Final Fantasy X, just for the cinematics alone, not just production time, but rendering time as well. It took them half a year to render the Xanarkin destruction sequence. That's not even counting production on it. On average, it took them a month to, fit, to render each sequence. That's insane. And the technology that they had at the time was, of course, very limited to compared to what we have today. Oh, yeah. um, and then 
not to talk about Tales again, but, you know, Tales of Arise has been in development for like six or seven years before it came out and then was, of course, delayed because of the pandemic and then took another year and a half after that to even develop. I'm playing that right now, so I don't know exactly what how the story is going to go, but I'm a big Tales fan. Um, but Final Fantasy VIII, we were talking about basically kind of how it was different at the time. How do you follow up, in your opinion, Final Fantasy VII was considered the greatest game ever. Period. Right before Final Fantasy VIII came out. How do you follow that up? And I think we kind of already talked about it, but what are, what are your thoughts on that in Square's direction? I think that Square knew going into this, of course, they had set a precedent before with each Final Fantasy game. They do something completely different, keeping the same themes and everything, but just changing almost every facet of it. I know they say they keep everything, but they change everything too. Um, now, I think they knew going forward that we can't follow this up. We have to reinvent ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right way to do it. You know, once you set a precedent for a high watermark, you don't go higher. You, get, right. you do something completely different, which is what they did. And I think that also ties into sort of the public misconception of this game not following seven in seven's footsteps and doing what seven did and a lot of people were probably confused like they did so good with that why didn't they follow it but you can't do that you have to reinvent yourself right final fantasy is an anthology on purpose you know yes it's it's not supposed to be the same experience and i feel like that was probably the most critical moment for them was that moment right there you know final fantasy 7 and 6 are so different from each other but not a lot of people knew that um, going into the next game um, and Final Fantasy VIII was able to do something I mean and very impactful to me and tell a completely different story and like I mentioned before Final Fantasy VIII is the happiest to me out of all the Final Fantasies you have a lot of classical romantic moments and things like that so it's not really the same kind of depression you feel um, in Seven you know Seven's meant to be tragic it's meant to be sudden it's meant to feel like the end of the world Final Fantasy VIII, I think, is more about um, things you can be hopeful and realizing, you know, that friends are important to you and a lot of those kinds of themes. I really, I really do admire um, the personal growth story of Squall throughout and all the characters throughout Final Fantasy VIII, you know, really understanding Squall's journey of loneliness mm. and his lone wolfness. Yeah, it's a part of his, it's a part of his character um a lot of people compare cloud squall and lightning um between the final fantasy protagonists and i think it's because they just see their exteriors as very brooding and unapproachable and pretty boy style including lightning pretty boy it is yeah but also all you have to remember all these characters go through a committee in order right. to be created right this is just what sells but once you really dig into the meat of the plot you realize just how much nuance there is to all these characters and there could be different themes they created for other characters that they end up bringing into the main character you know squall is basically um being boosted by everyone to become this main character who's able to express himself and remember what he wants and a lot of his story has to do with the fact that he can't remember his childhood um not in an amnesiac way but because that's kind of the rules of the world is you can't remember if you mess with magic in that world um and i really do like 
Final Fantasy VIII's um, concept of main characters compared to um, previous games where, you know, all the main cast was pretty relevant. You can honestly forget some of the cast in Final Fantasy VIII, but the story is still just as strong. So I think it was really new for Square to focus on, you know, just Renoa and Squall. Of course, all the other cast has their own backstories and world details and world building, but it's really interesting just how focused Final Fantasy VIII was on its leads. Right. Um, I had mentioned the music is very funky for the game, but the characters are kind of all similar. They don't really stand out from each other, but that's a part of the whole thing. Uh, it was, it felt very intentional. If, like the first time I played it, of course, I was confused. I was like, when are we going to learn more about this cast? But mm -hmm. you realize like it's it's kind of intentional. Right. And Final Fantasy VIII plays out in a, like a movie in that way. That's kind of where you can see some of the influence of the times right there. It's just the way we experience the characters and their, their growth and development and relevance to Squall and Renoa. Um, to follow that up, I think that uh, it was kind of the first game, like I mentioned, that had characters that were very similar to each other in the main cast. It's about six, 17 to 18 year olds uh, who are all connected in some magical way. They, they're called the fated children. Um, they were meant to reunite. They were meant to go through these you know, trials together. They were, it's all about time. Final Fantasy VIII's the game that's actually about time within the series. Yes. <laughs> um, and the effects of them reuniting and what was going on in the world at the time. I don't want to, I don't know if I want to spoil too many things. I think we're already past the point of yeah. spoilers. So I should ask you, what did you think about the orphanage reveal with all the children there that would eventually end up at the gardens? What did you think of that reveal? Because I have to be honest, I didn't like it at first. Okay, I was definitely gagged. <laughs> I, I was gagged. I was gagged. I did not see it coming. So that's hence why I was like confused. I was like, what? what? How do they know all know each other, but they don't because they use their GFs? Like, mm -hmm. what? Oh, I yeah. Um, if you junction your GF, you have amnesia. Right. That's a part of the story, too. Um, but I remember feeling, I remember not knowing what was going on. And then I saw like, a, a fun thing that Final, Final Fantasy always does is usually gives characters like speech patterns and like um, clicks, ticks in their speech and things like that. And that's how I realized that it was the main cast talking because of some of the things they were saying, um, yes. like Cypher calling Zell, you know, a dork or whatever he calls him. I can't remember. Chicken wuss. Chicken wuss. That's right. Uh, and I was like, no way, it's them. And then that's also a big moment for me because you realize Cypher is a lot more relevant to the story than uh, yes, you know, you expect him to be as a villain. And I think that Final Fantasy still to this day has kind of underplayed Cypher's role in the story, like in later features. I would have loved to see Cypher in Dissidia or Dissidia's, you know. I would love, I would love not to sidetrack, but we're going to sidetrack. Let's do it. Um, I would love a proper new Dissidia game. None of that NT arcade bullshit. None of that 3v3 I want a classic Dissidia game like the ones on PSP. Yes. And it's I never, time. I never got to experience those. So that was like a big thing for what? me. What? I don't have a, I never had a PSP growing you need, up. Have you, did you not play Crisis Core? I watched Crisis Core on, okay. on, on you don't, YouTube. Okay. You don't need to play it to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you guys didn't hear that I watched that. I don't want them to get that taken down or something, but um, 
I watched, I did the same thing with Decidia. I kind of watched the main story points. I, okay. Decidia was my introduction to a lot of the mainline Final Fantasy mm. characters because I was a kid. Obviously, I was not going to play all these games that I didn't know about. But of course, I knew, you know, Cloud, I knew Titus. Um, so it was really interesting knowing this whole lore and seeing all these characters interact with each other and then to go back and play these games knowing what I know about these characters from Dissidia and picking up on all their nuances and then replaying Dissidia and seeing it all in context it was crazy. Yeah you're completely right um, I think that I had the same experience because the first Dissidia came out around the time I started getting into Final Fantasy what was it like 2009 somewhere around yeah, that? Yeah about then. Um, that's when I first played seven was 2009. Um, and actually like in knowing those characters from that game and then experiencing them for myself, I thought there was a lot of differences. I still think after, cause I played a lot of the new, um, the Koei Tecmo, the mm -hmm. on PS4, which I am in agreement with you. I don't really, no, I don't think there's a lot of people who like that. I, I'm going to say it. It's a flop. Yeah. I was playing the last time I played, I played that a lot online, like um battling other people the last time i played it it took like 30 minutes to load a waiting room because no one plays it anymore no. um but the graphics are good i like that all the art is gorgeous because obviously it's final fantasy and these are tetsuya nomura reimaginings of all these characters right but it's just gameplay wise i don't think final fantasy needs a moba it doesn't no. um and i'm not like a moba player either so I'm a MOBA hater. <laughs> I I I guess I am too, but I do play um, Pokemon Unite and I'm actually kind of addicted to that. <laughs> but um, that was the big thing for me too. You can't really experience, like if you want to play one-on-one, -on -one, there's not even an option for that in, in T. So that was a problem for a lot of people. And the story was also kind of redundant of the other Decidias. They kind of repeated the same pattern, which I didn't think was good or useful. And they had a lot of empty promises with some of the uh, DLC that eventually came out. They had little scenes with Renoa and Locke coming into the story, and then the, they just gave up. There was nothing else on those. Yeah, I think they just like realized people aren't going to play this. I don't know what their numbers were, but it probably wasn't great because it was quiet on the timeline. Nobody was talking about that. Yeah, um, it, it was interesting to see how they envisioned Renoa uh that was the I first thought time she looked gorgeous <laughs> I thought she looked gorgeous but I was even more pleased when what is it brave exvius her rendering came her out for new that. cg I think that gorgeous. that I think that that game does it correctly that's how everyone should look they have the fan fantastical is that the word vibe to them without yeah. them being too realistic um and Renoa I think that's the best rendering of her ever because it looks like her to me and her Dissidia and T version didn't really, it was giving more anime than it was yeah. like the actual characteristics of Renoa's face, which makes her stand apart from Tifa and Dagger, who were both brown-eyed brunettes and the main girls of their games, two, one, two, three Final Fantasies in a row. I think speaking of, you know, Dagger, I think we're due for a Final Fantasy IX, not remake, but reimagining perhaps new artwork, mm -hmm. or rather just, I, I am a big proponent of Square making sequels mm -hmm. or just 
side games in each of these universes. They don't have to be huge mainline games. We don't need a 10-2 or a 13-2 or a Lightning Returns, <laughs> but I would love for them to go back to some of these universes and do something. Even right. just new artwork, anniversary artwork would be gorgeous. Because just seeing what they were capable to, to do with Renoa's new cinematic and just how effortlessly they nailed the style of her old appearance with just new technology. It's, mm-hmm. So I'm, I want to see what they can do. Yeah, I think that Final Fantasy IX, you know, the rumors are spreading. I think that it could be their opportunity to make something really artistic more than realistic, uh, yes. which a lot of games are doing nowadays. And I don't think is that fun. Uh, Squared Enix usually does the other titles uh, like Legend of Mana and um, some of the other games like uh, what is the one the world ends with you or yes that they kind of rely on those to be their funky clunky looking art styles and it's fun but they can bring that back with Final Fantasy 9 and I think it could be something really cool to experience and really different than what we've been getting because I will say though to give props to Square with their efforts on like blending realism and fantasy styles I think 7 Remake hit the nail on the head it all the characters look correct they look how they should and they still look very Final Fantasy Mm -hmm. but the world detail is extremely realistic and I've always been a big proponent especially if you know my work of blending (laughs) different levels of realism and I think Square is sort of the leader in that right now right um Final Fantasy 7 remake I don't have any complaints about I thought it was flawless I don't I okay people who wanted a one-to-one remake no they could never do that it's just what you said before like they have these giant worlds that they create we're not going to get the same game when you set the watermark that high you don't try to do that again you do something different right and they knew like okay we can't just remake this one-to-one we have to do something new and that's what I really appreciate I wanted to be surprised you know again I played seven front to back many many times I wanted a surprise and I was gooped gagged plucked (laughs) You're completely right. I think you're the first person that had mentioned you think that these remake could be a different ending than oh yeah. What we had in I, seven. I think remakes should be sequels, not recreations. It's a reimagining of the world has changed so much since then and the influences are so different that they really have all the room in the world to make something and the time in the world because people will wait for this forever. Oh, I remember yeah. when the trailer came out in 2015 and I can't believe it took them, you know five years and I still was just at the edge of my seat waiting for they, it. They had to finish Kingdom Hearts 3. <laughs> we, we know how that went. Well, we'll save this for another episode because you definitely have to be on the seventh episode talking about Advent and Children. Um, I have to be there. For yeah, because that. that's going to be insane. Okay, we are backed. Backed? We are back. Back, to- back, back again to the Final Fantasy VIII episode of Bound by Fate. Um, I just wanted to ask Josh his thoughts because something I noticed that he knows a lot about and he doesn't know what I'm about to say yet still are advertisements for video games. Oh my God, yes. Um, Especially like magazines, classical magazines. And then of course, the things that made it to TV, which Final Fantasy VIII got plenty of TV ads, I believe. I believe it did. Um, 
I'm not sure what the actual marketing budget of Final Fantasy VIII was. I know Seven had a huge push from Sony because mm-hmm. that that was a system seller right there. But Eight was very much writing off of the brand prestige and the name of Final Fantasy at the time. So I'm not sure how much they actually spent on marketing. But I do know that it had a few magazine advertisements, but it had a really gorgeous key art for all the promo as well. Um, I love to see the retro um, throwbacks that we see on Twitter a lot from yes. the era. I think, like I had said, there was a lot of magazine ads for eight as well. And the type, everything down to like typeface colors and like placements of the photos that appeared throughout eight. You know, they they used a lot of those CG scenes um, in the advertisements, of course. So cool to see that as a throwback, basically. Um, yeah, I love sharing just all that, like, throwback stuff and just seeing how fresh it still is to this day. Mm-hmm. I think a artistically, out of all the Final Fantasies, is, like, definitely the most fresh today. Not only because of how grounded it was in its period and in realism, but also just in how futuristic it was and how like forever futuristic it's going to be because human civilization is never going to look like that it's not going to happen but it's stuck in that place of perpetually always being this ideal futurism I think that a lot of people if you were to ask them which Final Fantasy is the most has the most realism influences to you a lot would have to say eight I think oh it's absolutely eight and it's still to this day Eight could come out this day for the first time and be almost exactly the same. And we would still find a lot of the same connections to it because. 100%. I think eight is like, I know it just got re-released as the remaster, but it is the most fresh Final Fantasy. And it's probably the most niche Final Fantasy aside from what, five. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it, I think it could definitely just be, if they were to just re, re- the release it as a new game mm-hmm. i mean it would still hold up world map and everything because that's i mean games nowadays don't have like overworld screens but mechanics aside it's still a fresh game right i would love to see the world recreated and whenever you think of it that way um and it, there were parts of it that feel futuristic obviously we don't have flying schools we don't have flying schools. We don't have, I was going to say we don't have child soldiers, but we do. Um, oh, a that's big a little thing. bleak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I interrupted that fun point, but um, a big thing is the internet and the influence oh my God, yeah. of the internet on the game at the time. So Final Fantasy VIII and the world, if you didn't know, um, they're bef- you know, slightly before the events of the story, I think maybe 10 years, um, yes. there's an EMP basically. I think Mm -hmm. that's the term that puts out, you know, it cancels all communication across the world. Um, And a part of the beginning of the story is them trying to reclaim a radio tower so they can actually send signals. And you've got a lot of these old abandoned TV stations and that's a part of the story as well. And so let's talk about that a little bit, I guess. Yeah, there was, you know, the TV tower plot line. I, Mm -hmm. I love that part of the game because it's near the opening and it's like one of the first action sequences that you really get to experience but also Mm -hmm. just the internet and its influence on Final Fantasy VIII 
And when you use the computers and all the interfaces, it's very much in line with web design of the period. I don't want to say Y2K because I know that's sort of like the catch-all phrase nowadays, but when yeah. you actually like really put in the research, it is peak Y2K and the futurism of the period and the optimism in design. A lot of that, uh, the interfaces you see reminds me of Tetsuya Nomura's art style. Um, when you think of games like The Bouncer, Oh, absolutely. The, the art styles are kind of blend together between Aid and the Bouncer and, of course, into Kingdom Hearts. I think that that's really cool to see his imagining of what, you know, that was basically when you click on the computers in the school, it was basically like their little social media board um, and us relating back. It would more so than it being like still realism today. There are just slight tweaks they could make to make it even more real um, for people to experience for the first time. <laughs> selfie on Instagram. <laughs> I know. Um, that's. Another... I mean, that would literally be the game. I mean, if you've played The World Ends With You or the new one that just came out and all its like social media references, mm -hmm. that would literally be like if they were to make Final Fantasy VIII today. It would also be fun to think like, what, a, what would the world look like if you couldn't communicate the way that, you know, you did 10 years ago? It could be a little post-apocalyptic for some people to see that. Um, but that's a part of like the dark side of the story, which is the whole world is at war. So of course, something like that would happen. Um, but again, the whole era of internet at the time, um, flooding into the game and becoming more realistic. I can't imagine what it was like to experience that, you know, for the first time in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. I would do like literally anything to like, experience it for the first time in context of the period with what I know now. Yeah. But I think any everyone would like any piece of media that came out around that. It's like the things we would do to like see it for the first time with what we know now. Yeah, there's a lot of outside knowledge that you can apply to the story in the game to make it more enjoyable. Um, yeah, I was literally like what the game came out in September 1999. I was born. September 1999 <laughs> so it's not really something I could have just played yeah same thing for me with seven I was born the month that seven came out so I've got that same <laughs> connection uh that I am always proud to to share with people but wait um, I have to ask when did you first play seven when I was 13 what year I was think, that uh 2000 I turned 13 in 2010 actually <laughs> not, I was 12. not to age reveal <laughs> <laughs> I was 12 I played I played seven in 2009 so I was just turned 12 I think it was the wow. summer before seventh grade I played seven when I was in kindergarten what I had it read to me because obviously I couldn't read how do and you... I had and I had it explained to me but I Final Fantasy 7 was my first RPG my first JRPG wow I played it in it was either kindergarten or first grade somewhere around then um 2005, 2006, 2007. So I played those games or the game and I fell in love with the world. So it's really interesting that mm -hmm. Final Fantasy is kind of my informative media of what yeah. fantasy is, especially seven because of how weird seven is. No, that's really cool. Uh, for me, if you listen to the first episode of my podcast, I talk about what my first like RPGs that I can remember are. But uh, the first one for sure is definitely like Pokemon Red. Um, yeah. Playing as a really, really young kid and not being able to read. I did not play Pokemon until maybe I was in 
second grade mm. and my first copy of pokemon was a bootleg copy of pokemon pearl that i got in the philippines amazing it worked but the rom was like broken or something um piracy was really easy on the ds so it was very easy to buy oh, working yeah. proper bootlegs but the rom the physical rom itself was broken so i my save would get corrupted like after a hundred plus hours so oh. i'd have to replay the game over and over again yeah i've um, done it many times <laughs> that's why i can't play the remake because i played it so many times uh i i remember i used to soft reset like heart gold and would replay the story and just not save i would just pause it close my heart ds gold heart gold is probably my favorite pokemon it's my favorite pokemon yeah i've got yeah. the same opinion that's good i think it's the biggest experience and i do want to do an episode on that one day so yeah anyone's listening we will do an episode about heart gold. call in <laughs> what is that uh that show from the 90s they were like doing on public raw TV. time yeah raw time <laughs> do you know it was filmed in austin yes it was um by the way if we want to reveal our locations i'm i did in the first episode i am recording from austin josh and i are talking on zoom josh i am from outside of seattle so we are completely across the country from each other, different time I'm zones. Far alas, I get two hours <laughs> on a plane, maybe. No, not even two. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the raw time thing's very funny, um, and also another classic '90s reference. I thought that that was a joke at first, and then I looked it up, and it was actually recorded in the '90s. And no, it's like... a it's a whole ass public <laughs> broadcast station show. Yeah, um, that was historic that's austin history that's texas history yeah that's it needs to be studied come on <laughs> y'all voted crt so i was about can... to say you can't even study like critical race theory but, but can you can at least study raw time uh i hate paul no i don't hate politics it's very important by the way but I we hate... love texas but texas is a little messed up yeah i hate the state of texas right now obviously everyone listening i hope you're um, a little progressive, at least, uh, to the things that are happening. In I our think country. I think they got that from. Hey, I live in Austin. I live in Austin. I like Final Fantasy. I don't think you can be a bigot. Put two and two together, Final you guys. Um, so back to the to the story of Final Fantasy VIII. Um, I think it's time for us to talk about our main cast, and I guess we should start from like least important, um, because we can talk about Squall and Noah for hours. Yes. How many, how long have we been talking? Who knows? I don't Who even know. We're just shooting the shit, talking the breeze. <laughs> um, well, good. I love a long podcast episode. I hate when podcasts are an hour even I or less. I should ask you, what podcast do you listen to? What podcast do I listen to? I used to listen to a certain podcast that I don't want to name because I have a lot of like conflict with it now. This is going to get extremely meta. This is going to be a podcast about podcasts. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think all podcasters <laughs> talk about what podcast they listen to. Um, I went through an era in the pandemic where I was tired of hearing people speak. Um, <laughs> I didn't care what they said or what their opinions were. So I wasn't even listening to podcasts in 2020. But I used to listen to this podcast uh, hosted by two white women who talked Queens. about who talked about um, crime in a way that was supposed to be funny um and I don't like that yeah I have a lot of conflicting opinions with it now um and it's don't not, make jokes 
I'll decide course, when I want to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> comedy is, comedy is, yes, it's, it's, uh, what's it called? If it's, it's up funny, to I'll laugh. Exactly. Don't make it funny. I don't, if you're, if you're calling yourself a comedian in your bio, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. Because... I think comedians are like the biggest scammers. Com- comedy is a crock of shit. If it's funny, I'll laugh. Don't exactly. tell me to laugh. And how do you be funny on purpose and make that a job? Hmm. 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 So yeah, it was hosted by two comedians um, <laughs> who talked about murder in a funny way, but not really problematic. I don't know. I was more upset that they complained so much towards the end about, you know, their terrible living situations. And I'm like, I'm poor. That's a little personal. I'm poor and you make millions of dollars a year and own your entire podcast network now. So... I can't afford therapy, <laughs> but yeah, you can. I can't be that vulnerable on the internet. No, 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 no I can't. Um, but uh, I, I listened to that for a long time. I've always had an interest in like true crime. I tried to listen to, um, I, I've listened to all of, what is the big one? Serial. I've listened to all of Serial, at least the first season. I think there's at least two seasons. Um, there's another podcast I used to listen to to quite a bit i'll still listen to episodes here and there called the murder squad um with paul holes and billy jensen paul holes is a former police detective and billy jensen is a former crime reporter um Mm -hmm. and they talk about unsolved crimes and actually try to get these crimes solved and there's been a lot of cases that they've talked about that have been solved like dna evidence later on i think that's very interesting um I have my DNA in a um, database in case any of my family members have done something terrible. They can, <laughs> they're able to link it back to, back to me. So I think that that's good, you know, good technology to have. I've always been passionate about um, true crime, like local cases. And there was one in the town I went to college at. I, should I reveal my, should I reveal my if university? You want, but I was going to say to segue back to Final Fantasy, we need a crime-based Final Fantasy, like a full-on crime drama. That would be Ooh. great. See, they're, they need to hire us because I do think they're running. I don't want another Hinga Dinga Durgan game in Final Fantasy. Listen, medieval has to go. It, there's Dark Souls, there's Dragon Age. There's... Ooh, I love, I love a gothic fantasy moment. Mm-hmm. I love a noir moment, but like if everyone's go. doing it, if it's, everyone's doing it, it's gotta go. I don't want you know a million different souls clone. I I, I started playing Code Vein today, which is like the anime Dark Souls by um, Bandai Namco. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous game, very cool visuals, gameplay very fun. I've never been big into the Souls games, but this is very like, it's like Souls for girls in like a good way. It's <laughs> Souls for the girls, for the dolls. I only play games for girls, by the way. Me too. I only play games for girls. Um, but no, it's, I really enjoyed it. But um, I can, I can say though, I'm a little over like the Gothic fantasy moment the Bloodborne, Dark Souls moment. I, and I think that it's like our like Western experience that puts us in that place because that's, oh, absolutely. So, that's so like common to us with all of the Western games I know are mostly like that. It's giving But I know that. in Japan, they eat the stuff up. They eat the stuff up and they've also had years of this futuristic and colorful and like different kinds of ideas coming together through their storytelling through video games and anime. It is very much like a cultural clash. It's probably something very fresh to them. But I would love like another Final Fantasy X that takes influence from just all of Asia and Southeast Asia specifically. 
I'm so I wouldn't ex- love another world like that. I'm so excited to talk about Final Fantasy X and the dedication to culture and respect to culture. Um, Josh, talk about that a little bit because it's I feel like you can give an actual unprecedented. It's unprecedented just seeing the appreciation of Asian cultures at the time, and especially in Japanese media. Not to get bleak about you know world events, but there hasn't really been historical appreciation within Japanese media for Asia at large. Right. But um, no, Final Fantasy X is like the perfect example of just like this Japanese piece of media that takes influence from all these different cultures. And I've sort of talked about it in my own work as Mm -hmm. this trans-Pacific millennium. It was very much something of the time that they could only do in the 2000s, where just so much cross-cultural ideas were being shared between East and West and Asia as a whole. Yeah, so talk a little bit about, um, there's a lot of references to like, Pacific Islander, Southeast Asia within Final Fantasy X. Um, yeah. And the, I mean, there's not a good relationship between Japan and those countries and, and those areas. Um, I think it was really, it was an important moment for them to cast characters as, you know, people who had brown skin or yes. who like came. And it was a part of the story too, because you have, you know, Riku who is Albed. Um, I mean, it's literally a racism metaphor, not even a metaphor. It's quite literal. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? And like just the appreciation of culture and dedication to culture. I think it's very important. And I think it's very just evocative of the the optimism of the period. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to remember, this was still a pre 9-11 world. Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy VIII was too, by the way. Yes, Final Fantasy VIII does have a lot of mm-hmm. the same optimism of the period. And, you know, post, post 9-11, a lot of world media changed. Uh, and Everything was bleak. Yeah, they had different things to have to, you know, bring into their games to kind of bring happiness. Well, I, I wouldn't even say that a lot of games were happy post 9-11, at least for the first few years. The only thing I could think of was, you know, things that were probably already in production, you know, Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, you're right. Or things that were made for children, you know, specifically. I think that's definitely like a topic, though, for a future episode. Yeah. Just extending to games as a piece of culture as a whole beyond, you know, JRPGs, the effect of, you know, this 20 year war. Right. And, you know, this is a, a JRPG podcast. So thinking about like, uh, what Japan's view of world events was at the time without necessarily being too involved. That would be crazy things to talk about and reference. Who knew this would turn into like a history podcast? I know. And for no, for, for anyone listening again, Josh and I also love a specific game called Fatal Frame and make lots <laughs> of jokes about it. But um, learning about Japanese culture through a video game lens, I think is a really important and you know, it's, profound it's a experience fascinating for me. cultural like perspective that I don't think is like studied or analyzed a lot through a you know academic lens in the right. way that it should. And I think you know the verbiage of using media or pop media is very important rather than just stating like game, movie, film, etc. 
because all this media, it's all sharing ideas more than people would like to admit, honestly. And putting it back to in, into Final Fantasy VIII perspective, of course, there are tons of influences of Japanese culture in that game that we only know through the lens of the player and learn through the lens of the player, even though Final Fantasy VIII is more based on like kind of European influences, um, just like nine is a little bit more medieval, but basically I Europe. would say that like Final Fantasy VIII is the most contemporary right. globalist Final Fantasy. It's easy to imagine any, any you know, nation in Final Fantasy VIII because mm-hmm. of you know, evolution and technology and things like that. And architecture is a big thing for me too in Final Fantasy VIII. And they're able Absolutely. to do lots of different styles in that game. And like you can place yourself in different parts of the world, essentially in Final Fantasy VIII. You've got the gardens that are very futuristic and modern at the time, architecture, uh, lots of windows, lots of glass. Um, and then you have the smaller villages, that, you know, Zells from Balam. Um, and then the, of course, I can't remember the name of, what is the village that Laguna, uh, meets Raina? The little one with all the flowers. Dalit? Is it Dalit? No, that's Dalit is the first mission. Yes. Mm, I have a computer in front of me. Oh, we literally have computers. Uh. I love how we're doing a Final Fantasy VIII podcast and we cannot remember names for the life of us. I know. I am the worst person at names. Don't ask me to remember a name because I won't. I, I can't sent you a study guide. It you, is... did, you did send me a study guide, yes. And I did not study. I didn't study it either. I was like, hmm, leaks. Okay. Not this, not saying. Where is it? Galbadia. It's in Galbadia for sure. Windhill. I knew it started with a Wind W. Hill. Win, Windhill without a D. Win. Oh, Win. Windhill. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's cute. Which is a very German looking. It's very German. Um, with lots of flowers. Oh my god, I need a drink of water. <laughs> With lots of flowers and stone and that kind of thing. You kind of kind of see this classical art style in Final Fantasy IX with, you know, Final Fantasy IX is a lot more limited in what they did with the range of artwork because I think, you know, Final Fantasy VIII is very much a story about the characters, whereas nine felt very balanced. Seven felt like the environments were the ones that were very much telling the story. It's a good point. Um, Final Fantasy VII, you're supposed to feel like the effects of everything and the destruction around you and the the post. Seven is a, it's an environmentalist story right. very much. It's literally like a capitalism, global warming metaphor. It really is. Um, I've always heard that Final Fantasy or like Midgar and Final Fantasy VII is based off of New York City. Yes, but um, this was, again, the idea sharing that was going on in um, Square at the time. Um, it's Final Fantasy VII, the original concept, bled into Chrono Trigger, which then once they finished that, they went back to finish Seven, and then they made Seven, but a lot of the leftover ideas went to um, Parasite Eve, which is literally in New York. Wow. And... That's insane. But uh, where does Xenogears stand in all of that? Because I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Xenogears was originally proposed as Final Fantasy VII. So I wonder if they took any of the themes from that and placed them. I haven't played Xenogears. It's obviously on my list because I know there's a lot of comparisons with that between between Xenogears and 
Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is my new favorite anime, my <laughs> fa- favorite old anime. <laughs> I think, um, no, it's just even to extend this further, much further beyond the scope of these games, this idea of the the environmentalist undertones in all this Japanese media of the time. And again, considering what Japan was going through, this was their lost decade. They, Their economy literally was in the gutter. You're completely right. Yeah. And what it, and if you take that and put it in perspective of what Square had to do after um, Spirits Within and Tintu kind of failed them in the way mm-hmm. that they weren't expecting. And I th- think they were close to bankruptcy. Don't quote me. But, oh, they were. Square yeah. goes bankrupt like clockwork they they're literally like multiple times a decade there's a chance square will go bankrupt (laughs) yeah um so thinking about that and then you have have you played dirge of cerberus yes i thought it i thought it was just okay i love dirge of cerberus and there are people who think that it shouldn't happen it shouldn't have existed but i think it was a fun follow-up i love the compilation of final fantasy 7 project i Mm -hmm. loved all of those games i mean i i don't think that they necessarily hold up but I thought, I think the art is gorgeous. The music is great. Mm-hmm. The story is, it's hit or miss, but I'm always happy to see these characters. And Final Fantasy has always been about the characters. Right. The reason I love Dirge so much was because Vincent and Yuffie were, of course, originally planned to be love. A, planned to be in the main cast without you having to look for them and be secret characters, but they were cut for content purposes. And I think Seven was at the brink of its limit on you know, gigabytes. What What is the term? Josh. It, seven was chock full of content. I think they were still figuring things out with the PlayStation. They didn't really know how to squeeze like a Final Fantasy eight size game because eight is all the Final Fantasy games are around like 35 to 40 hours. Mm-hmm. But um, squeezing in all that content, they couldn't fit eight or nine knowing what they knew when they were making seven. Right. So seven in comparison is actually pretty small to eight and nine. Right. Um, and the story might not, may not feel as small, but it's definitely, you know, the jump in um, CG and all of the artwork and environments that they had to create too was big I think them. Final Fantasy VII though is the masterclass in like RPG pacing. Right. I mean, I think that's something that they may have not necessarily learned from, but I think... <laughs> Seven and ten have incredible pacing. Nine, nine is pretty good. Eight, I feel like maybe they lingered a little too long in some areas, and maybe some areas didn't feel as properly connected. But narratively, all these games well, are great. It for me, eight does a good job because you start off with this fantastic cinema, cinematic oh, yeah. experience with the That's opening gorgeous. movie that they had not done in Final Fantasy before that literally hypes you up and gives you sneak peeks as to what's going to happen in the story. Um, It felt like you're watching a trailer for a really, really good movie. And that's what they wanted, essentially. Um, And Seven, of course, like you said, the masterclass, like that is, you can't start, No, everyone has tried to recreate the bombing mission in Seven with how they start their game. And um, there's a lot of games that I've played, Tales especially, the Tales series, they start off very slow before they get good um, and they don't really try to do what, you know, they're doing in other JRPGs. I haven't played Dragon Quest enough to, to say, but that's, a, of course, one of the big three in Japan. Dragon, Dragon Quest, Final Quest Fantasy, and Tales. I can appreciate the um, 
its roots and I can mm -hmm. appreciate it wanting to stick to its roots and be traditional through and through. However, I don't think, you know, speaking as somebody who is a Western gamer, I don't think that's really for me. But I mean, gorgeous art. I'm not going to say the music's gorgeous because, um, you know, yep. Yep. we don't a, need to go there yet. But uh, a Nazi in the building. Literally. I, not to get controversial on the pod, but <laughs> I, that is so square, square. Come on. It, that's another that's, nuance that's all I can too. Say. That, that's another nuance too that we have with you know Western versus Eastern cultures clashing is that um, scandals like that aren't too big of a deal to them at the moment. Um, no, I mean he got called out for it, and like he's not very. He's dead. D word. He, no. he is dead. He's <laughs> he's where he belongs yeah. to get controversial on the pod. Um, but no, that was embarrassing. Square should have given him the boot as soon he as all that, that things came out. He wasn't out. that good of a composer. He's not that good. <laughs> um, but he is revered for whatever reason. Because, you know, Dragon Quest is at that, like, Disney Mickey Mouse level of ubiquity. Mm -hmm. So, give and take, I guess. Yeah, all of his music sounds the same. So, that it's was... not good. Yeah. 